Hey, welcome to Current Yield. This is uh, Jim Grant on behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. And uh, yeah, this is our podcast. This is not to be confused with a print edition of Grant's, which you read. This is uh, oral. So having cleared that up, I want to welcome uh, today's roundtable. First of all, the um, great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. Hey, Ed. Good morning, Jim, or good afternoon. Afternoon, I think it is. Well, and it, uh, not to be dogmatic, it's morning some places. But um, the, uh, in the eastern time zone of the United States, it is definitely afternoon. In fact, the market probably has uh, closed now. Uh, hey, short sellers, was it a good day or a bad day? In, in brief. Uh, a little a of both. Okay, okay. With us today are two guests, Thomas Morton and uh, Prem Naomi, who are professional short sellers. They decide which stocks are likely to go down, and they take the appropriate action. They borrow the shares, sell them, and then, then and wait for them to go broke, essentially. But uh, we'll get into the nuances of that line of work in just one moment. But uh, hey, Evan, we closed an issue of Grant last night, if memory serves. No, we did. It does, which is why I'm a little bit confused today, just uh, still getting my bearings. This, ladies and gentlemen, this is our first issue back from our summer vacation. And I can't speak for Henry or I can't speak for Evan. But in my case, I come back after a lot. And they're like, where's the space bar and the typewriter? I can't find what, what's what. Where's the Bloomberg? How do you turn this Bloomberg thing on? So uh, that took some orientation, but I think we did it, Evan. If, again, if memory serves, I think it's a pretty fine issue of grants. But in any case, it is done. So now we get to play. Today's a play day. And we have chosen to play, as I say, with uh, Thomas Morton and uh, uh, Prem and Ami, who are the uh, eponyms, who are not the eponyms, who are the founders, who are the progenitors of Aflamato, rhymes with tomato. But the Aflamato is a bird. And it is a, uh, it's a, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a meat-eating bird, is it not? I, 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 it's, it's a bird that is meant to make you think of short selling, as opposed to like a, you wouldn't name a short fund like canary, right? No. <laughs> it's a, so, it's uh, a smallish falcon. Yeah. Oh, right, falcon. Okay, right. So um, Thomas and Prem are career short sellers, and both had something to do at one point in their careers with a friend of late friend of mine, Rusty Rose. And uh, before we get into uh, what Alphamato does for a living and what Thomas and Prem bring to that line of work, I want to ask them, Thomas or Prem, depending on how you want, to, uh, tell us a little bit about your experience with Rusty and how he might have led you into this very singular and. Uh, and unusual and uh, ever so profitable at intervals line of work. Well, w- when I met uh, Rusty in uh, 2001, uh, I had not yet shorted a stock. Uh, I was a, a wet behind the ears analyst coming out of investment banking. But this, um, is, this, is, this is Thomas, right? Yes, this is Thomas. Okay, okay. And the team, Rusty and the team of Cardinals, uh, turned me loose on a company. It was actually FLIR Industries, FLIR, F-L-I-R, stood for forward-looking infrared um, that uh, they thought might have been um, recognizing revenue and deferring expenses a little aggressively and um, that there might have been some other issues with the company. It was immediately fascinating to me that um, there might be more than uh, meets the eye. And or less, the less. Rest, <laughs> less, and the rest, as they say, is history. But um, you can't talk to me or probably Prem for very long without hearing us invoke something rusty 
yes. taught us about investing. I think to call him a short seller would be, for, pardon the pun, selling him short. He was really a fabulous investor and a great mentor. Yes, right. Hey, Prem, uh, you come, you have a kind of an unusual background in that you were such a deep STEM guy at UT. You were an electrical engineer, not uh, once, but twice, including the master's degree. And then, then what mm-hmm. went, more conventionally went to Wharton. But how has uh, this uh, engineering background served you in the line of work you have chosen? What, what makes an engineer perhaps especially uh, fitted to uh, uh, look into the uh, uh, lapses of corporate America and profit from them? I think there are probably two things. Um, one is this idea of like always wanting to solve the puzzle. So in engineering, oftentimes you're faced with what at first may seem like an intractable uh, issue that you need to solve. And, and so you start to dig and you dig and you dig and you just get used to that going in there and, and you get a lot of joy out of solving the puzzle. So there's a lot of intellectual stimulation and a lot of parallels between solving an engineering puzzle and solving an investment puzzle, uh, which for Thomas and I, this is like what we get up, you know, we get up every day to do this and we get up. I'm thrilled to be doing this. I've been doing this for the better part of the last 12 years. Um, I, my, my first experience in investing was in private equity. Private equity? <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's, a, yeah. that's a kind of financial war criminal thing, isn't it? <laughs> that's a, I mean, that's a four-letter word now. Yeah, right. Hey, but uh, um, but uh, but Prep, uh, uh, riddle me this. So in engineering, uh, you solve the riddle, you solve the problem, right? And uh, and you produce the answer. Let's say there are twelve people in the class, and uh, you're on the whiteboard, and you have the answer. And it's the answer. It's self-evident that uh, the mathematical, uh, uh, the, the 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 processes, uh, probably largely mathematical, with which you have arrived at the answer are true, and the answer is correct. Nobody can disagree because it's self-evidently a fact. All right. So hundred percent. Right. Okay. So in the speculation business, it's not just a matter of the facts. I know of plenty of situations. In fact, Evan and I have lived through a few in which you have the darn facts, the world chooses to overlook them, and you might as well have come up with the wrong facts. So how as an engineer do you deal with that? And that's what I like about the business, right? I like the idea that you have to understand how people perceive information rather than just the value of that information in itself. And so for us as short sellers, we're pretty obsessive about trying to understand what matters to the other side and how can we right or wrong and why do people own a stock and what's going to make them sell it? And so we try not only to try to find the right information, but we try to find the right information that matters. And that psychological element for me really resonates in addition to the fact that I like solving the puzzle. Well, you know, uh, uh, I'm not sure how Evan sees this, uh, but, uh, you know, if you look back in a, a very long term chart, you can look back to the middle of August of 1982. And uh, back then, the Dow was, I don't know, it was a thousand, not quite maybe in the, Henry Kaufman said uh, interest rates would go on lower, and there was like a there was like a thunderclap in the world. There was a tidal movement, a kind of a, kind of a physical force. And you could feel it, and that was the beginning, as one could see, with only a little bit of retrospect, in the beginning of kind of the intergalactic bull market. And there have been pullbacks. There was a notorious pullback in 1987. There were some difficult days in the early 90s. And of course, there was the infamous tech bubble of the late noughts. And uh, we don't have to be reminded about 2008. Oh, wait, maybe some of the newer listeners. In 2008, uh, not everything went against according to plan. 
there were these bumps in the road, but sensibly since 1982, it's been uh, kind of up. And yet, tell me, Thomas, first, and then Prim, tell me why short selling, and then we'll get into some specific situations, and then Evan can take over in there because Evan is the, uh, the star security analyst on this. I want to know why you guys have chosen the hard way of making money. Um, well, if it were easy, it wouldn't be any fun. Uh, but and and I don't think it's easy on the long side um, uh, to to really outperform. But I think right the end is that it's immensely satisfying from an intellectual perspective to, as Prem says, solve puzzles or at least partially solve puzzles that the world is often actively trying to obscure. <laughs> And uh, th there's satisfaction in figuring something out or getting close to figuring something out that, um, right, that, that others are not. Um, and and that doesn't always mean there's an opportunity, right? You Not only do you need to figure something out that perhaps not everyone else sees, but there needs to be some process by which those who see it incorrectly are uh, relieved of that view. <laughs> <laughs> and it forces them to act. Right. right. Sometimes it, it's not as you said, you know, it's not good enough to be right. Um, it's got to be right and it's got to be relevant to the buyers and sellers of that security. Yeah, right. Well, I uh, was intrigued in some of your writings that uh, uh, a couple of, of terse lines of, um, of wisdom. And, uh, and one deals with, uh, uh, with the opportunities in the inventory cycle. And um, uh, you guys write at one point, nothing creates a surplus like a shortage. And I, that's, that is uh, pithy and uh, true, which is uh, a good thing for an epigram. But also as a paradox, isn't it? And I might ask you this, that the advent of computer technology would put an end to the inventory cycle because information about inventories and consumption and the, the, the rate of production would be available to all. It would, it would begin to... Uh, uh, to replicate the ideals of, uh, of perfect competition, and uh, humanity would be spared uh, the wavelengths and uh, mal de mer of the inventory cycle. And yet, far from it. So how, how do you, is this just human nature at work, overdoing it and underdoing it? Where did technology come in, and why hasn't technology solved that problem? And what are the opportunities in the inventory cycle for short selling? But I think the part of that question is about my pay grade in terms of why technology has or hasn't solved it. But you you answered it to some extent, Jim. It's human nature. And it's, um, you know, I'll just walk you through a really simple example of a situation over three periods where demand and sell through doesn't move a whole lot, but lead times blow out and resolve themselves and it results in an ordering pattern that's incredibly volatile. So let's take something in the equilibrium where demand and sell through is 100 units a year. And lead times are very short. Maybe the inventory manager, let's say the less than a month, and the inventory manager says, well, I'll hold 10 units, right? I only need enough of this particular component to last for a, a month or so. So I'm only going to hold 10 units. And in that year, Right, they sell through 100. He orders 100. He starts with 10 and ends with 10. Everything's fine. He gets a call at the end of the year from his friend at the supplier, and he says, "Bad news, Bob. Lead times have blown out to six months." <laughs> and Bob goes, "Okay, well that's a that's a problem. I only have 10 units, and 
let's even say that demand, say a pandemic has come along and suppressed demand and demand's only 90 units. But even then, Bob, the supply chain guy, needs, thinks the right level of inventory is 45 units, right? He needs right. Uh, six months worth of inventory. So he orders 125 units, right, to get uh, his inventory up to 45, even though demand went down to 90. The next year, say the supplier calls up again and says, great news. <laughs> the you know, lead times are back down. We're back down to a month, no problem. So the supply chain manager says, oh, okay, I can take inventory back down. I'm still going to be a little cautious. I only take it to 15 units. I'm not going to go back down to 10. I learned my lesson last time. But even let's say demand is back to 110. We've had a revival. To solve for that end inventory number, his order quantity is going to be 80. So in a world where demand went from really you know, 100 to 90 to 110, the ordering pattern from forward to some supplier or something like that, or, or you know, from Whirlpool to some supplier, went from 100 up to 125 and back down to 80. And I think the opportunity there is that models, whether they're from the sell side or other people, tend to extrapolate linear trends. And a move from 100 to 125 to 80 in a world where the end market demand hasn't moved a ton is nonlinear and uh, that's an inflection point that people don't appreciate. Um, to say nothing of the margin impacts on that supplier when their order, you know, when the orders are being whipped around like that, when you get into trying to think about fixed costs, absorption, and all that fun stuff. And COVID probably made it the worst head fake in the world. For the last two and a half years, a lot of companies saw incredible stimulus-fueled demand while supply was held back by uh, lockdowns in the U.S. and China or places abroad. Um, and we've seen companies like Peloton fun suddenly find that they have too many exercise bikes that they can't move, and Amazon stuck with too many warehouses that now seem redundant now that demand has actually cooled down a little bit. I think the idea that as a purchasing manager, I mean, as you can have as much technology as you want at your fingertips, there is perhaps career risk for a purchasing manager to be short on something when demand exceeds what they have on the shelves. And so people will double order and triple order, and you've seen it happen across a bunch of different industries in, in sort of waves, and they'll deal with the excess inventory in the future. Just like, you know, every other human with every other problem, they, they kick the can down the road because they, they're trying to address that demand today. And that is, a, I, I believe, what we believe, a, a very human sort of psychological or incentive-driven behavior. In, in other words, technology changes, but people don't. Um, grounding this out to, to kind of examples today... So we have a couple of examples of, um, you know, the supply chain catching people unawares. I, I mentioned Peloton and Amazon, but you guys actually are still finding a very fertile set of uh, companies to hunt after going on this example. Can you talk about uh, a few themes that you guys are finding interesting? Yeah, um, I guess let's start with a fresh one uh, in, in PCs, um, which you had HP report yesterday in Dallas a few days ago. Um, we had initially, you know, wondered about the PC boom about a year and a half ago and decided that it was probably too early because um, at the time you could see some pretty significant pricing power as well as volume growth and continued to kind of watch it for a while and then started to see inventory build in the channel. And what that meant to us was, you know, that eventually that would have to get flushed out. And with demand slowing, 
and the uh, pretty significant amount of PC, PC demand pulled forward over the last two-year period, at some point, you would see falling sell-through. And what, what sort of held up, held up things for HP, for example, was they were able to actually take some price, they had some, some ASP strength over the past few quarters. And just in the print yesterday, we saw that break. And we saw it break in the PC segment and a little bit in the print segment. And, and our view is that this will likely continue over the next few quarters where there has to be an inventory flush. You're seeing discounting kind of industry-wide uh, for PCs, a lot of laptop sales. And you're starting to see that at the commercial side as well. Um, you know, Thomas can talk a little bit more about some of the stuff that he thinks is interesting on the appliance side, but you know, PCs is a, a really interesting example. I, I do think it's important to point out that these sort of waves or these inventory corrections happen in, at different times in different industries. So you might see it happening more, more acutely in apparel or in certain consumer goods like the stuff that Walmart and Target, where it, that, is, that is probably in the later innings of a correction. Um, as people sort of backed off their spending from goods to services, whereas maybe in PCs or semis or appliances, it's only now really starting to take hold. Well, we are with uh, Prem Dengani and uh, Thomas Morton, who are the founders of the, uh, the still young uh, Aflamato partnership. In any case, uh, a short selling institution just begun, Aflamato Advisors. And um, we are talking with them about uh, human fallibility and uh, buying low, but later, and selling high, but first, short selling. And uh, one of the, the arresting things in the materials that uh, uh, Prem and Thomas, who said, wanted to evidence me to review was uh, the following. Our review, quote, our review of over 3,000 IPOs found that, 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 that 3,000 IPOs stopped me cold. How does one review 3,000 IPOs? And having done that, um, you know, did you get any sleep afterward? I mean, it must have, it must have been a startling experience. What, did you, what's your, what are your conclusions and how did you do it? So I'll tell you how we did it, and then I'll pass it on to Thomas to talk through conclusions. But uh, I'll tell you, we went over our Bloomberg data feed um, like limit of how much stuff we could pull into the API. So I had a few um, awkward conversations with Bloomberg about that. Um, but basically what we did is we reviewed 3,000 IPOs uh, and tried to see where short alpha could develop in, in, in the post-IPO period. Because what we'd come across, we'd come across some great research from the guys at Verdad that had shown that in five years post IPO, uh, you know, a large percentage of IPOs actually underperform, and and five years is not an actionable timeline for a short. Um, it's it's a painful timeline, and so we said, well, can we can we replicate this an analysis over a shorter time? Like let's say inside of the first two years post IPO, where does the most short alpha exist? And so we broke it up in sort of six months window, six month window. So zero to six months, where six months is the lockup, and then six months onwards. And then I will pass it to Thomas here to tell tell you about the results. Right. So the there we do need to tip the cap. I believe there is a professor at a university, one of the public universities in Florida. I forget which one, who does a ton of work on IPOs, and and a lot of it's made publicly available and he's really done quite a bit of work. So if anybody wants to dive into that, go there. Um, and and we leveraged that work. But Prem talked about, okay, IPOs are interesting, right? If lots of IPOs are happening, there's some signal in that. Those are educated sellers coming to the public markets because 
presumably they like the price. <laughs> and you know, is there signal in that? And and the first piece was okay. Um, let's forget about the pre-lockup period because you can seldom borrow the stock. Right? So can we find an actionable window? Let's look at the next year after that, and let's look at whether or not those stocks underperform or outperform or perform the same as the indices during that period. Um, and the punchline is that in the 12 months after lockup expiration, call it day 190 plus 365, the median IPO underperforms the market by 15%. And there's a huge chunky distribution, 38% underperformed the market by more than 30%. And the one caveat to that is you have to remember that the distribution of returns in the stock market is kind of like that too. The median stock in any year is a dud. And the stats there, the median stock in any given year tends to underperform the market by five or 6%. So the punchline there with, with IPOs is that the short alpha, the underperformance of those is significant. It's exceptional and it's in an actionable window. And, and it endures over time, right? You can slice that data up and say, well, let's throw out the dot-com bubble. The signal's still there. They still perf uh, underperform massively. And I will also note that you can throw SPACs <laughs> right in there with them. Um, there, there's uh, similarly disturbing, <laughs> disturbingly bad stock returns for DSPACs as there are for IPOs. In fact, uh, in some cases, they look a lot worse. You know, interest rates are a big part of the uh, return or the lack of return of the short selling world. Um, has the move upward in short dated interest rates uh, yields, is that uh, helping you yet, or is that still uh, more or less prospective from the point of view of practical returns? Uh, you know, a GC borrow after the fee, you're earning 225 basis points on your cash today, which, um, but for a very brief period in, in well, I guess that was 2018 before the Fed blinked again, um, it's been a long time since uh, our short cash has really yielded anything material, but um, you know, 220 basis points is, is not nothing. Uh, so uh, it's, it's helping us um, and it beats the heck out of um, paying on a net basis to borrow even a general collateral name. You know, the, uh, what did you guys do? I, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure your partnership was in existence during the, uh, uh, the first six weeks of 2021, unforgettable for so many short sellers during the, the meme stock frenzy. But how do you handle the threat of, uh, of, a, of a public swarm of uh, valuation indifferent uh, renegades um, who are there to uh, uh, basically shoot down your falcon? <laughs> this is a new thing in the marketplace, is it not? Um, I, th I think some of it is news, some of it's not. Um, I think short squeezes have been around as long as short selling has been, um, as as you well know. Uh, gamma squeezes have probably been around as long as options have been around. Um, I think, and and there were the Yahoo message boards that are the yes right. pro progenitor of of Reddit and whatnot. I I do think that the the difference this time around was the scale and the speed <laughs> with which retail investors collaborated and and had had the time and and free time and access to trading options for free or at a discounted level so there was some new phenomena but i think if if you just said 
I'm not, as a storyteller, I'm not going to touch any of these things at the total epicenter of the meme stock universe. It's, I don't know, is it 10 or 20 or maybe even 30 stocks at the most? And if you just concede that part of the market because it's too crazy, you still have, you know, thousands and thousands of stocks yeah. to work on. That doesn't mean that when those things, you know, when you have a Bed Bath & Beyond or something like that go crazy, that other high short interest names that aren't at the epicenter don't squeeze up, right? You, you see it across the spectrum, but it's a squeeze that as a short seller, if you've been doing it long enough, you're accustomed to that being part of the game. Um, and there's one way to avoid it. The other way, if you're involved in something that has that potential, is you really need to pay attention to what's happening in the options market. And you can see it bubbling, as we like to joke around here, as the mouth breathers start buying weekly YOLO calls in large numbers, um, something might be up. And the nice thing about these things, if you wanted to get out of the way, is they're incredibly liquid. So if you wanted to box the position or just step aside or something else, you you could. Um, but it's, I think the best way to do it is just to say, I'm not gonna mess with this incredibly crowded. And the other thing about GameStop, right? GameStop was a very, very crowded borrow for years and years and years before 2021. It was a squeeze waiting to happen until right the stars aligned and and then obviously in January 21 they aligned in extraordinary ways is a high short interest bullish or bearish is a trading signal the data say it's bearish right one of the you know there's paper upon paper looking at decades of short interest data that say stocks with high short interest even accounting for borrow costs and the occasional horrible squeeze on balance in the aggregate produce significant short alpha. The caveat is that you have periods like October of 2008 or January of 2021, where you have these death-defying squeezes in high short interest names. It's a, it's a signal that there, it's, it's probably an interesting pond in which to fish, but I think you need to understand which fish are okay to go after and which ones aren't. And, and that involves looking at just because there's a high short interest relative to the daily volume, what does the holder base look like? What are the rates? Where have they been? Right. That's, that's interfacing with the securities lending market to try to understand whether or not the risk of a real squeeze is there. Um, and some heavily shorted names have a lot more risk for that than others, but it's, um, it, there's a mosaic of things that create the potential for these these crazy squeezes. There are many great short sellers, but not many great short sellers who last more than one cycle. Um, there's periods, as you pointed out, where the market is absolutely just, you know, shooting for the moon and other periods where, you know, everything sells off. How do you guys manage risk so you can sleep at night with a short book? I think we think about our sizing a lot around how much position, how, what, what kind of risk is in each position rather than how convicted we are about all of our positions. So you, know, you might have a 2% position in a small cap sort of volatile name has a much riskier, sort of riskier risk profile than a 4% position in a sleepy, you know, large cap sort of melting iceberg. And so we think about things that way more around how much could we lose in this name rather than how excited are we about it? Because 
it is it's hard to measure risk but it's it's doable it's it's damn near impossible to measure and quantify conviction so i think that's that's number 1 is use sizing you know size around risk and then also we don't really want to bet the farm on anything um as short sellers i think we we like the idea of playing a batting average game and and the data would support that since you know like the median stock underperforms so what we should be doing is taking as many quality shots on goal as possible and sort of you know be willing to walk away from opportunities or be willing to take things off when or what wrong so that we can fight another day and continue to show our prowess on the short side. So it, it's about sort of sizing for risk. It's about taking, you know, playing a batting average game, not a slugging game. Um, and it's about constantly monitoring sort of price insensitive buyers and options markets and, and knowing what you own or knowing what you're short, I guess. And, and we do take very much take a sort of portfolio approach to our book, which is we have a little bit of everything thematically rather than sort of one type of short, As you know, whether it's all frauds, which I, th- I think I'd, I'd be all gray at this point. I'm probably 50% gray. Um, we have a little bit of everything, sort of, you know, business issues, over earners, secular losers. Uh, so we diversify across what we believe to be are the major factors uh, across sort of short ideas. And you mentioned uh, kind of the computer cycle now. What what else excites you guys uh, as you look at the market today? Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that follow through from the computer cycle uh, across the semiconductor chain that, that are interesting. Um, and there still remain uh, some things that had super normal earnings um, that are being capitalized into the future that unless there's some new paradigm, which I suppose is possible, Grantham says, you know, profit margins are the most mean reverting series in finance. And, um, you know, businesses like we've mentioned, like HP or take Whirlpool um, as an example, right? Whirlpool was not growing for basically a decade (laughs) through into 2019. The operating margins were somewhere in the range of six to seven percent um all of a sudden right and the business goes to having you know grows at the top of them but the most founding thing is that operating margins expanded to 11 percent which is just you know unprecedented and um it's not likely <laughs> that margins are just going to stay there at 10 or 11 percent i think that they're more likely than not headed back into the you know, mid-high single digits. And that's not what's, I think, embedded in the official consensus expectations. It's a low multiple, so maybe the market's discounting that some, but it seems unlikely to me that um, there's some new high plateau of profitability in a business like that that's highly competitive, um, particularly as um, the Korean manufacturers expand capacity in the U.S. and try to take share. Um, and the margin thing is everybody gets the COVID demands, the COVID demand winner, loser, hangover story, right? Peloton is the 190 proof version of that. But I think what's underappreciated are, are, are those margin impacts that large, stable, not particularly profitable businesses had incredible booms in profits. You know, Whirlpool going from making a billion three or a billion four of operating income to making 2.4 billion of operating income. Um, those are massive jumps. Even, you know, take a Kushnet, right? Who's Titleist Golf Clubs. 
that was a business. That business segment was stuck at 40 million of operating income for almost a decade because golf wasn't growing. In fact, it was shrinking. The number of golfers was shrinking for a decade. And lo and behold, in 2021, all of a sudden that business makes 75 million in operating income um, on margins that are around, I think, 14% operating margins when they had been at nine or 10 for a decade. So I think looking for situations where um, you you think something can mean revert and the market's capitalizing uh, some new high plateau, uh, I think there's opportunities there. The rest of the things we look at are a little idiosyncratic, right? I mean, we like drug launches. Um, those are, are a prof, you know, tend to be a profitable theme for us as, you know, the, this transition from the development phase to the commercial phase can be very difficult, particularly for smaller companies. But Grants, you guys wrote about Apple and uh, bearishly a couple of weeks ago. That's a business that if you look at it, the iPhone business, the iPad business, the Mac business, they were not growing for several years. It was a product cycle business. Revenue went up and down. Profitability was there. Meanwhile, you have this incredible, right? The Apple product business went from kind of a $220 billion business generating 70, 75 billion of gross profit to being a 300 and something billion business generating a, over 110 billion in gross profit out of, you know, this is a hundred, you know, multi-hundred billion dollar business having a 50 or 60% inflection in profitability. That's, that's pretty exceptional, right? And, and meanwhile, right, um, it's trading at, um, as full of valuation as it has in a decade. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll leave it to the listeners to decide what to conclude, but there seem to be situations where um, the expectations for what seem to be totally unusual circumstances to continue, um, I think the probability is that things go back to a more competitive less bumper profit world uh, probably lie in our, in, you know, in our favor. So, so one of the amazing things to me is I know a little bit about the appliance industry. And I know that if you look at the, um, the CPI data, appliances have been a deflationary good up until uh, COVID for about, I think, three decades. It was such a competitive market that prices actually fell every single year. And if you actually look at Whirlpool's P&L, They've had a restructuring expense every year for, I think, at least 25 or 30 years because they always have to actually cut cost in order to become competitive. And when you look at Apple, since I think 2016, they basically have kind of flatlined in a lot of product, uh, product categories. And it's been kind of this cyclical thing where every two years they do a major iPhone refresh. They have a big uh, upgrade and then iPhone sales fall. Have you been amazed at how quickly so much, so many investors have basically uh, accepted that we're in a new paradigm for so many of these companies that the economics that had existed for decades had suddenly changed at a drop of a pin and suddenly these were better businesses. I mean, appliance, uh, Whirlpool is a great appliance maker, but the appliance industry is kind of a mediocre industry. I think you hit it spot on. They, they were better businesses for a couple of years. <laughs> um, and I think, um, you know, it's more likely than not that they return to being the businesses they were for a long time. And your point about appliances being deflationary um, is well taken, I think. And and that was probably, that was going on for a long time as Samsung and LG entered the U.S. market aggressively and took share. 
and to some extent that was mitigated by the tariffs put in place during the Trump administration. Many of those have sunset or rollback or manufacturers have figured out a way to source around them or or mitigate the impacts. And so that deflationary uh, cycle is resuming. And um, we've, we've done a little bit of work to look at promotional activity, which was non-existent in 2020 and 2021 for in-demand goods like appliances and um, fitness bikes. And promotional activity has come back. Right. If you walked into a Home Depot or a Lowe's or a Best Buy, you would see appliances across the board being discounted anywhere from 15 to 30 percent. And if you walked into those stores a year ago, there were almost no discounts, uh, a few SKUs. And the biggest discount you could get was maybe 10 percent. So that that to me is is sort of proof positive that at least one piece of the unusual profitability equation in the last two years is unraveling. There were a couple of years where they didn't have to promote. And now we're back into normal promotional cycles. Um, and you would think that to some extent that would lead to more normal margins. <laughs> okay. So um, have uh, uh, Prem and, and Thomas, is there anything else you'd like to uh, to add to this uh, uh, this, this discussion before we sign, sign off? I think one thing that's really interesting to keep an eye on is where the semi cycle goes from here. Across the board, if you look at the different touch points in semi, different semi end markets, whether it's PCs, it's networking, semi device, and even auto suppliers like, you know, Aptiv, um, you actually see that inventory levels have crept up significantly uh, over the past few years. And, and, and what's happening now is early indications that some of those end markets are starting to slow. And you know, I think there's going to be some significant bifurcation in the semi space uh, where, you know, I think previously you saw sort of foundries bear the brunt of, of declining demand as customers canceled orders. Now they've got some, some toothier long-term agreements in place where they've been able to extract additional value from mm-hmm. the likes of NVIDIA and Corvo, uh, you know, who couldn't, who couldn't take supply or had to, to re, you know, revise their supply requirements down. Um, it remains to be seen whether or not those long-term agreements will actually hold over the cycle. And I actually think that's a really interesting space to be fishing right now. And it's certainly a place where we're doing a lot of work. Well, indeed, Thomas and Brian. Oh, indeed. That reminds me of our fine slots. Now, indeed, is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. So don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when all you need to do is called Indeed. So find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like the Indeed Instant Match Assessments and Virtual Interviews. Um, Candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in search according to U.S. Indeed data. So with Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description and you can invite them to apply right away. So um, Indeed knows that when you're doing everything for your company, you can't afford to overspend on hiring. So visit Indeed.com slash grant to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash grant. Indeed.com slash terms and conditions apply, cost for application pricing, not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let me let me ask you this, uh, uh, Thomas and Prem. Do you... Um, uh, do you t- uh, 
do macroeconomic conjectures from the micro mosaics that you uh, create in, in your research. I wonder, having looked at so many IPOs, having looked for opportunities in the inventory cycle, uh, do you have anything to any uh, more than impressions to contribute about uh, about where we stand in the business cycle? You know, or about inflation, or about any of these macro concerns that are so front and center. I, I think it was a lot more clear, it's easy to say in hindsight, when, in, in 2021 when we were looking at, you know, I think it was a thousand IPOs happening, IPOs and SPACs happening in a two-year period. That was a very clear signal of public market excess. Um, right now, the things we're seeing are, are, have a lot more to do with the actual, not the capital market sale, but the business cycle. And this latest round of earnings, um, setting aside what expectations may have been on an individual company basis, was by and large companies taking down numbers, <laughs> right? Yeah. And in some cases, uh, I, if you listen to the HPQ call from the other night, they were acting as though they were totally surprised by all this. And um, sounds like a Fed. And I, you know, like I said, if you had a business like PCs that was not exactly growing gangbusters all these years, and then all of a sudden for two years, there was no pre price elasticity, you, you know, nothing, demand, you could, everything you made, you could sell. It seems to me that as a business owner, you might question whether or not that's going to continue forever. And when it doesn't, <laughs> you shouldn't be surprised. But You shouldn't so, should act surprised. Um, or you shouldn't act surprised. So... Um, the uh, the one thing about the semi piece that that Prem noted, you you will see things in the papers where they say, oh, there's still some things in shortage, right? And I do think there are still items where there are supply issues. This this concept of the golden screw, <laughs> right? Or the the golden chip. It's a five dollar chip holding up a fifty thousand dollar car, or or even a half a million dollar lithography machine. That does exist, and there are those spots. But I think and and that may slow some things down but the vast majority of those things are are out of you know your rank and file your normal things you're you're also getting a lot of companies kind of putting up the all clear signal on supply chain and saying we're either very close to normal or we're just outside of normal or we only have a couple of things that are an issue so sure you the golden screw phenomena may still be in place but i think by and large the supply chain has caught up and is probably being helped, right? In, in things that were in short supply, being helped by the fact that the demand side of things is slowing down in a lot of cases. So in that moment, that period we described where demand went from 100 to 90 to 110, and because of the inventory cycle ordering went 100 to 125 to 80, I think we're in a situation where demand's going back down. And so, so those ordering patterns could be you know, erratic, you know, have an erratic move to the downside. Yeah. I don't know if the, it, it, it's hard from there to divine macro. The only thing else others say about our micro process, educating uh, macro view is it does. I go all the way back to spring of 2009 at, at Carno. Every quarter we did a new idea generation process. And every quarter for years and years and years, the team generally produced between 15 and 20 new ideas to look at. And all but one or two of those would be short ideas. And that was the case every quarter, almost without exception. And then in March of 2009, 
we all did our things and we put and we had 15 or 16 ideas and there were 10 long ideas <laughs> from a bunch of short sellers right and th there's a signal in that right yeah. now when prem and i look around we're not we're still finding a lot of interesting short ideas i think there's still uh still people on the long side who are going to be unhappy with some of their recent decisions <laughs> Well, as they say on CNBC, we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it there. Um, <laughs> and what they also what they also say in their case, uh, without sincerity, we have to have you back. So interesting. But in our case, uh, Thomas Morton and Prem Nainami, we will have to have you back because this has been intriguing. Uh, Prem and Tom, as you listeners know, are the principals of uh, Applomato Advisors, and their uh, icon is a falcon. So just uh, watch your back. Ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but uh, Henry French, thank you. Evan Lorenz, uh, nice to do business with you. And once more, Thomas and Prem, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Grand's Interest Rate Observer, uh, Prem's subscribe, close Prem's. That's the ad. Evan, that's, that's the advertising message. Look forward to talking to you again. Mm -hmm.